Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host Miguel Valdez. And today, Friday, April 14th. How you doing, guys? I'm here today with my friend Wilmer and Reggie. Reggie, you guys are visiting us from... Northfield. Northfield, Minnesota. For the people who's listening to this and they're not familiar with Northfield, can you describe Northfield to our friends? Sure, it's a long 35W uh, south of the Twin Cities, about um, 45 minutes drive. It's uh, on, right on Highway 19, and College I hear, City. And I hear this is no, it's no pretty at all. I hear it's horrible, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's heaven. North no, it's a heaven. paradise, a little <laughs> paradise, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Describe it. Describe it to the people. Little downtown river, beautiful yeah, well, buildings. Cannon River it. runs through it. <laughs> you know, like, um, like uh, if there was a better way to describe a town, you know, a river runs through it. Uh, also, we have two colleges, Saint Olaf and Carlton, which is you know the life of the town. A vibrant downtown, which is full of energy and shopping and walking paths and. Uh, really um, beautiful, vibrant, Hills, yeah. welcoming community, and also in the, uh, the weekend after Labor Day, we have the second largest you know festival in the state, the, the defeat of Jesse James Days. Okay, you know it's cataloged as you know second only to the state fair. It's only uh, what is it? Thirty minutes from the Twin Cities? Twenty four minutes depends on traffic. Right. right. Yeah, I always say forty five minutes because it's it. You know, it's because you follow the law. <laughs> yeah, the speed limit. Yeah, if you don't speed. Yeah, Reggie, um, I just want to share uh, this with my all everybody who's listening. The first time that I met you, you invited me to go and check out the project that you were working on probably like eight or nine years ago in Northfield. And what I was, uh, what I found, it was beautiful. You were working with community members who... You mentioned that first you organized a community garden and you showed the community garden where you met uh, these participants. And then you shared with us also that the community garden served a purpose of identifying people who was really into into gardening and farming. And, uh, and then you said also that those individuals had the love for the to work with animals and the farm and they want to they had the spirit of being uh, entrepreneurs is mm-hmm. that right and then you chose uh, a cooperative where you guys were working together to put this mobile I will say chicken coops where you were recuperating the land can you share a little bit right so you met us when we were barely getting going on a whole different theory of change mm-hmm what we did was we we drew out a landscape and um, we drew it over the existing landscape covered primarily by fields with corn and soybeans and all of that. And um, at that point, it was really a vision of repopulating parts of that landscape with um, minority-owned farms, with uh, Latino-led organizations and so on and so forth that were dedicated to farming. And one thing we figured out very early on was that most of the immigrant families here have lost the connection with with um, the reality of what it takes to farm in this country. Their idea of what farming is is connected to their origins, where they come from, and this country is so different that 
we needed to kind of ease them into understanding this new landscape. And what better way to do that than bring them out of their homes and set up community gardens and so on and so forth. But our idea wasn't really the community gardens. That was not the end purpose. No. The end purpose was to walk them through a path where they would naturally move into actually believing that they could become farmers. Because that was the hardest thing to do with them. No, being overwhelmed just exactly. by jumping into the big... Well, we'll remember that, you know, whatever you go in this in this place, whether it's, um, you know, a legislator talking about our region and, and talking about immigrants, it's always done in the context of we need more labor, you know, we need more people ready to work, that kind of talk. None of these conversations, and watch them in the radio, television, everywhere, you know, town, mm-hmm. town hall meetings... We as immigrants, especially Latinos in this region and for the country for that matter, we are not talked about as entrepreneurs, as scientists, as as employers, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. We are always talked about the need to have immigration reform because we need more laborers. Well, heck, well, that's not the way we are, uh, most of us anyway, uh, trying to do this kind of work. And so our idea was to create a, a process by which we could create a new narrative, a new representation of who we are as people and our intellectual and scientific and entrepreneurial capabilities. And to do that, we had to create a path. And for me specifically, I'm an agronomist. I grew up in agriculture and all of that, so I'm not going to pretend to know how to do other things. And And this is where my passion is anyway. So the community gardens was a step in that direction to move through that process and bring people back into kind of submerged, immerse them into learning so that they could emerge at the other end with a different understanding of their own roles within the food and agriculture system. Changed from, I'm here just to provide labor to someone else, to, heck, I could actually be a farmer myself. But it isn't just about saying that. There are structural issues that have to be dealt with issues of financing, training, and so on. And for us, one of the things we found out really quickly in that process was that the system, the way it exists and the way it's owned and controlled, it's really um, impermeable to minorities. If you want to enter that system, just imagine for, for, for a second. You know, If we go, you drive outside of Rochester, you look at the landscape, corn and soybeans and cattle dominates the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. Now, imagine for a second if you're a family you know, earning $22,000 a year, which is the majority of our, our Latino families, working probably sometimes two jobs. And also, maybe you achieved a high school degree in back in your country, but that's all the education you have. You barely speak English, and on and on that whole line of, you know, characteristics go. Now, imagine yourself trying to buy 300 or 400 acres and getting yourself into half a million dollars worth of machinery and trying to figure out how you navigate contracting your corn and soybeans with you know whatever company is is buying it and on and on it's it's that's why most people just see and see that landscape and figure that's not for me now so what we did was we skipped that whole thing and if something if you can see that something is not going to work the worst thing you can do it's actually do it again. Do it again, and so for us was, well, okay, let's find a different approach, and let's do let's base that approach we're going to undertake on the basis of what we know already how to do, where our experiences are, where our cultural values are, 
where our own American dreams are. A lot of our American dreams are not the standard, you know, publicized American dream. Some of us actually have a very different idea Mm -hmm. of what our dream is. So we went back, did all of that research, came back into the landscape with a whole new agriculture system redesigned, centered on poultry, with the with the understanding that poultry is what gives us Hispanic immigrants and other families who are not wealthy or who don't inherit land or don't have the ability to buy it or get into the bank and just get a loan for half a million dollars to buy machinery. For all of the rest of us, we needed to enter the, the, the system from um from a low threshold perspective, yet uh, in an area that had large scale potential. Poultry represents that. It's natural, it's, it's, it's traditional to our cultures, it's, uh, it's a livestock that is critical to the regeneration of the landscape in terms of ecological regeneration. It also is a universal uh, livestock, which means brings us back in connection to our own communities of origin. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of the science we're incorporated into our system now comes from checking back with our grandparents and our parents back in Guatemala, Mexico, Honduras, Colombia, and so on. So you see, this is something that nobody really had thought about. And so once we had that system structure, we went up, we went ahead and created the prototypes since we met with you, everything has changed. We now are looking at farm size operations. We got two regular size farms now, one 100 acres and the other one 42 acres. I remember you know. the one the, that I visited was, and you mentioned the the land was, I don't, I don't know if the word is correct, is abuse or how you say when you use it a lot, all the nutrients were gone, and but with the chickens in there in place, it was coming back to life. Can you describe that? Well, or? and if we, we want to be straightforward, it's called degenerated. Okay. <laughs> Conventional agriculture degenerates the, con- the the landscape, its biology, the ecology. I mean, honestly, in order to do conventional farming, you first have to destroy the ecology that was there in the first mm-hmm. place. And there's nothing more backwards than destroying the very thing that wants to thrive in a space to put something that doesn't want to be there and that you have to fight and spend a lot of money to keep it alive artificially so you can have a meager crop. And it is, you know, we could get 600 bushels per acre on, a, on an acre of corn, which is impossible, of course, and the best is around 400 somewhere in the southwest, in the, uh, the southeast in the United States. You know, average people are getting 200 bushels per acre and less than that, depending on where you are. But even... You know, four six hundred bushels per acre is a meager crop if you actually consider the cap- capacity of that landscape to produce immense amounts of wealth. And what was the science of reintroducing the chicken? How would that help <clears throat> into the field? So what happens is the the first thing that that goes on when you put a conventional, uh, especially corn and soybean monoculture into a landscape is that you have to destroy most of the microbiology. Mm -hmm. Microbiology is the foundation of energy transformation. In this case, we're talking about nutrients. Mm -hmm. So those nutrients that you put in are going almost straight from the pump, from the fertilizer, into the plant. Um, And then then, uh, the plant is is absorbing only part of that. It's one of the reasons we end up with so much water pollution and soil Mm -hmm. pollution and all of that. And if you look at the ditches and all of that full of algae and all of that, it's because of uh, most of most of the phosphorus, for example. You know, about 90% of the phosphorus becomes 
unavailable to the plant almost immediately after you put it in the field. So it goes down the, the creeks and so on. Now, when you operate like that, what happens is that the natural energy cycles of the soil that are the foundation by which plants do well gets degenerated and every year gets more expensive and more difficult to grow something in the same space. So what we do in our system is turn the whole equation around. Instead of degenerating, we do every single managerial uh, activity that we put into the field. All the agronomics are designed to restore that microbiology and the health of that soil so that then you can start harvesting larger crops with way less input and actually lower cost overall. But not only that, um, there is also the, the you know, the soil is, is the most important thing. It's the beginning of the whole equation. But also, so are pollinators, for example, that are critical for the way crops mm. produce fruit. Without the pollinators, most of, most of the plants won't produce. So it's a mis, totally mis, mis, misunderstood aspect of our ecology. So we, can, we go around doing so many things without a clue of the consequences of it. And so what, in our system design, we have brought all of that into the process, but still, at the end, we have made it very simple and straightforward. If you wanted to be a, farm in our system, a farmer in our system, you come through a process of training, mm-hmm. and at the end, you can deploy a system. Whether you understand the whole ecology or not, it's not as relevant. I mean, you you can if you want to. We got all the material. But it doesn't mean you have to do all of that to be a successful farmer. And that's the key to deploying large-scale infrastructure like this. And so we are in the process of doing that now. But fundamentally, back to your question, you know, the, the fundamental principle there is restore the health of the soil, mm-hmm. restore the health of the ecology you know, that, that the soil extends into. And if we do that, you got a much better, uh, healthier working environment for the people who are involved in there and, and for that matter for the livestock that you may raise in our case poultry and as a result of all of that your farm is a lot more efficient and more profitable that's really the the, the crux of it and today where is where is the reason that brings you here to rochester to this part of the southeast minnesota so uh, as we deployed the prototype units in northfield that those were the testing units we okay. you know in every engineering process, you start with production units. Once we had designed that, we moved on to the to the farm-level units, which means you aggregate production units so you can get a full farm size okay. operation. And so after those you, were prototypes, the ones I tour. Yes, those were then. the production unit prototypes. Okay. The farms, so I remember you chose those kind of big spaces, and then you also, at that time, you chose the, I think you guys got approved and you got a, like a machine to, how you say, when you're working with the chickens, when their chicken, the poultry is ready to be processed? Right. Well, th- that was a backyard um, process or just, just for consumption, for family consumption. Okay, well, so, for, so families could actually. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you in our, in our system, processing the chickens is critical, right? So mm-hmm. we have to take all of our poultry that we sell to the market is, is yeah, processed. Yeah, I remember you said the. You pretty much had it all sold even before you sacrificed the the animal. You had your waiting list, people waiting for your produce. Right, and at that point, we, we could have sold twice as much as we were producing then, and, and it's still moving in that direction, although we are not in mm-hmm. between right now. But bottom line is, poultry we wanted to sell outside of the families, or the, mm-hmm. actually the families never bought it. They just harvested their own, but 
um, poultry that went to restaurants and, and stores is processed uh, at a USDA inspected mm-hmm. facility right. out in Elgin, um, in Utica, sorry, uh, Minnesota, and um, just east of Rochester, by the way. Mm-hmm. And the um, but the family's uh, food was always harvested on the farm, and so we bought equipment to process the chickens we kept for ourselves. Now, the other thing ab- about this process and the reason we're in Rochester now is is because after we did that and after we got this 100-acre farm that we are deploying now and we started deploying the 42-acre farm, that's the, the the third level of development. You know, start with the production mm-hmm. units, move it to the farm. The next level is the regional deployment. So at this point, what we're looking at is southeastern Minnesota as the landscape, Rochester being a critical destination point for for the system deployment and also a very significant market we want to supply. But uh, to supply the this market, we want to deploy the farms right around Rochester. Okay. That's critical. I mean, in, in reducing your carbon footprint and in implementing efficient systems and all of that, the one thing you don't want to do is sprawl because then you start transporting things further, you mm-hmm. get more risks, you lose more livestock in the process, and everything gets more complicated. Keep it local. Exactly. So the process to do that, in our case, you know, that's why Wilbur is here, because he's leading the effort to organize a Rochester-based community, farmer community, that uh, we are looking for land now to to locate and so on. And then hopefully that community then spearheads more people, you know, the the idea, and and more people start to come into, into that. Um, circle, and eventually we can deploy uh, a large-scale, you know, regional farming system based on the same. And you also, so you're doing poultry, and are you doing any produce also? Well, here's what happens. If you think of it as a system rather than just poultry, Mm -hmm. what happens is energy cycles don't just close their loops within one one area. Mm -hmm. So if you think of poultry, we get the energy for the poultry from the feed. The poultry then produces manure, mm-hmm. which is still the same energy that came in in the yeah. form of feed, that manure then uh, that gets dispersed in both two places. Paddocks that are fenced-in areas where the chickens roam, mm-hmm. where we don't we don't collect that manure. We just grow perennial crops in that area. Okay. And so we, we got hazelnuts, elderberries, and other perennial systems that are into the paddocks. Junk... Um, um, Chickens are jungle animals, so this is this is the way we re- we reconstruct that natural environment for them. But then, in the inside the chicken shelters where they sleep, they defecate at night, and so that manure is is also energy that we want to utilize at a system level. And so we moved it move it outside, mm-hmm. and then we deploy production outside of the paddocks, which has no chickens, but where the poultry manure is utilized to grow more perennial crops, and then alley crop vegetables, produce, and all of those things. But it's still that produce that we are harvesting, you know, in the summer, which was fertilized in the fall with the poultry manure, is still energy that came into the system in the form of feed. And that's the cycle. And so yeah. at the end, we can produce... What is considered and certified uh, organic? Or, or what kind of... Well, How, what is that considered in the this market? Is, this is organic, is natural, okay. is fair trade, is... Okay. Is regenerative. I mean, you could put any label you want on yeah. it. We meet where, the standards. Where do people find your product? 
where where people have where have you put it? We don't have products in Rochester right now. That's okay. that's what we are we are designing. You work you know, with other cooperatives? Yes. Right now in, in Northfield we can find our eggs and our and our meat chicken at the grocery store, the Great. Just Foods Co op. Um you can also um if you are in the Twin Cities or in, Fa- in Lakeville, we got buyer clubs there that that organize themselves. And Lakeville is almost seven hundred people, so it's pretty significant. And we are we have a directory of uh, Rochester folks who will eventually become part of that drop site system. And we have been in in conversations with the co-op here. I mean, okay. all the co-ops pretty much um, um, are part of our network for distribution. Great. Um, and then. Um, our products are also served by Bon, bon Appetit at St. Olaf College in Carleton, and um, those are the, the that's the extent to which our products are being distributed right now. But it's already significant. So. Reggie, tell me a little bit about In the Shadow of the Green Man. This is a book that you, the author. Please tell me about this. This is great news. Yes, well, In the Shadow of Green Man is. Uh, is a storytelling project. is um is an exercise in in an original story. Uh, here's what I what I know. Um, our story, our immigrant story, mm-hmm. uh, are told all over the place, but rarely do you find those stories told in first in a first voice in first hand. So, I was looking at all the articles that have been written about what I do and the people I work with and all of that, and I always find it misrepresented. So In the Shadow of Green Man is my own version of my own story, of my own immigrant story, as well as my own upbringing and, and where my passion for the work I do comes from. It is, um, it is written in a, in a very um, engaging form. It is a storytelling project on both fiction and nonfiction. The nonfiction deals with my autobiography, mm-hmm. my life my life path to get to where we are now. And then the, the fictional part is, ju- is the green man as a um, fictional character that, that I created when I was a kid and that was critical to get through a lot of those difficult times during the war and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, I, w- I was born in, in, in really poor conditions and so the, the subtitle of the You're book... You're originally came, from Guatemala? From Guatemala, right? So I was born in, in rural areas in Guatemala and the book's subtitle is From Hunger and Poverty to to Food Security and Hope. And fundamentally, we achieved food security in the same way we are deploying, in, in, with the same similar system to the one we are deploying today. So the book establishes the principles by, that guided my community, my family, and myself in that case to learn how you actually deal with poverty and hunger in a, in a way that fixes it permanently. This is a way to tell our own story on how we think the, pro- the perennial problems of the world that deal with food and hunger, uh, food insecurity and hunger, can be solved, and they will not be solved by a lot of what people are believing will do it today. It won't be solved by aid. It won't be solved by the develop- developed countries. And it won't be solved by the companies that created those conditions in the first place. It will only be solved when we as communities take charge of the resources that are already in our communities that are the foundation to solving those problems. And the book is my story on how we did that 
and, and hopefully the witness so that others will stop waiting for those answers to come from those places that will never provide them, but that pretend to do so. Reggie, what would you say to somebody who, you know, they want to, I guess a lot of our community members have uh, entrepreneurship embedded, you know, in our spirit. But, you know, there is always that fear. What would you do to conquer that fear? Whatever dream, if it's uh, to be a farmer, if to be a mechanic, to be a doctor, you name it. What would you recommend for somebody? Well, here's, here's, the, here's the secret to encouraging more entrepreneurship. We call it de-risking. Now, if you're an entrepreneur, you get that spirit that you're talking about. You mm -hmm. got the spark, and you got a dream. You want to do something. You feel driven to it, and you and you and you're smart about it. So, you, the first thing you do is start studying the landscape and analyzing risk and calculating all of it in mathematical ways and so on, so you can get a sense of whether you're going to make it or not. And then you come to this place where you can't make yourself move forward because you feel the risk to be overwhelmed overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So one thing us as professionals and institutions can do is de-risk the, the enterprise sector so that more entrepreneurs can make that jump. So what we have done in this case, and this can mm -hmm. be done in almost any industry, is design a system, tested it, prototyped it, made it work to a great extent, are building the professional capability to manage it and to support it, and now we are launching what we are called the Soil Restoration Notes as part of a partnership with Iroquois Valley Farms out of Chicago so that we can even de-risk the financial side of entering this entrepreneurial realm where we are in agriculture. So that is one way to build the capacity, to build the, the landscape that is less risky for an individual to jump into this and actually have a better chance to be successful. And that chance or that opportunity or say that perception of wh whether you are going to be successful or not is is dependent on those systems support and support infrastructure that are put in place for entrepreneurs to take that risk and be more confident about it. So we have done that, and I have worked on other industries as well. You know, back in the Twin Cities, I worked with retail stores, and we also did all of the de-risking. You know, building markets building awareness and so on and so forth and also structure so that those folks would get the proper financing and on and on so that they could get from A to B and then from B to C and all of that, knowing that someone else was also with them supporting and so on. I mean, this is not new either. I mean, mm -hmm. chambers of commerce do that and so on. The only difference is that when we came into this landscape Business of agriculture, yeah. exactly, being incubators, but when I started researching as a farmer myself, where were their support systems? There is no support systems for you unless you want to go conventional. The conventional system is well-resourced, well-de-risked. You know, we as taxpayers actually have de-risked conventional farming through our taxes. You know, there's over $285 billion every five years that the Congress approves through the Farm Bill to subsidize and to de-risk conventional farming so that farmers can keep doing that. And then well, we see you know, less and less family farms. Well, that less works. and less family farms doesn't mean their the corporations are not growing bigger. Okay. I mean, just keep in mind that corporate farming was not designed either to support farmers or to feed you. They were designed to make, to make money. 
And so we got confused with with the idea of food and corporations. Food and corporations are not are not connected. Corporations had to make money. Food is what we produce on the farms. And so as we as we fell into that fallacy, we also have lost a lot of the family farms because again, it is not it is not part of the mission. It was, the, the conventional corporate system of agriculture was not designed to support those two things. That's why we have so much trash in the marketplace that we call food. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the over 250,000 products that are sold in supermarkets. Pretty much all of them, except for a few exemptions, exceptions, uh, have, for example, corn syrup. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't need yeah. that. Yeah. But the industry needs it to make money because it cheapens a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So we get these illusions that there is such thing as cheap food, except you end up paying for the food that you ate. You end up your paying it bill. with your health and, and then the doctor bills, which if you actually brought them back and called them food bills instead of uh, diabetes or mm-hmm. heart disease or those other things, you we actually have the most expensive food in the world. The difference is that you don't pay for it at the counter at the store. Yeah. Today, what would it be the a candidate or who can connect with Walmart? Who would it be that person? Anybody can? Who would it be an ideal candidate to connect or at least just to get in touch with you guys for here, for the Southeast area in Rochester? Well, we have various um, what, target. What stage are you guys at? We, are the, we have four stages, actually, mm-hmm. of development. The first one we call it Discovery. Okay. During the discovery, we do things like what we're doing today. We talk to people. We scan the environment. Wilbur and I have been scanning the the nonprofit and the business support community in in, in Rochester. So we know about the Rochester Foundation. We know about the Chamber of Commerce. We know about your organization, mm-hmm. and we know about uh, a lot of individuals like that and, and institutions. So mapping out all the assets so that we can actually then deliberately engage them. So if you are out there and you hadn't heard of us, um, and you have an organization, whether it's a co-op, a grocery store, or a restaurant, and you find this interesting to you, we'll get in touch. We're not, we're not promising anything right now, products or anything, mm-hmm. but we are promising that we will be bringing your interest into the design of the system. Second is individuals who may be part of a community-supported agriculture program, maybe are just sick and tired of conventional foods and want more natural foods and all of that and want to engage us in, in the conversation and explore whether we are an answer to their to their concerns or not, um, then they should get in touch too, so individuals. And then we have um, more of the, say, legislators and government in, individuals, uh, um, officials, who may be twiddling their thumbs and, and, and wondering, you know, how can we build a new way of thinking about agriculture, about food, and about competitiveness into the future. And so if you want to have a conversation about that, as we design this system for the for the region, please give us a call. And um, all of that is critical right now during the discovery phase. Once we finish that phase, uh, although it never ends, but we, we do kind of move to the next phase, which is development, that's when we do the planning. And we do the the actual strategic and business planning and start looking for the land and all of that. And at that point, we will be interested in those who actually want to farm and become part of the system. So we can train them, develop their capacity, their plans and all of that. So we can move to the third uh, phase, which is the launch. That's when we start producing. And then the fourth phase, which is when we start growing. And at that point, we just 
do more of the same. We go back to discovery and we repeat that over and over until we hopefully, you know, become a, a force to reckon with in this region. Reggie, I want you to help me out by giving me a three-minute invitation in Spanish for our Spanish audience who might have lost some of that information. Can you do that? Or Wilmer, una invitación, tres minutos, para que invites a la gente de qué se trata esto y cómo te pueden contactar. Ok, la idea es eh, poder invitar a las personas latinoamericanas que estén interesadas en hacer agricultura, producción animal, producción vegetal, eh, pueden contactarse con nosotros a través de nuestras páginas Main Street Project, que estamos en Facebook. Main Street Project, ok. Project, y también tenemos la página como Main Street Project ORG, ORG. Uh -huh. entonces ahí podrán ver nuestra página, podrán ver qué es lo que estamos haciendo, podrán ver qué es lo que estamos investigando y podrán ver a qué queremos llegar, cuál es nuestro enfoque. Y ahí se pueden involucrar con Y ahí ustedes. pueden contactarnos. Ajá. ¿Cuál ha sido tu experiencia en este? Yo sé que llevas menos tiempo que Reggie. Comparte sí. tu experiencia, por favor. Yo vine aquí hace exactamente un año. Eh, ahorita pues estoy eh, superando ciertas barreras como la del idioma, ¿verdad? Uh -huh. eh, nomás vine acá, empecé a trabajar en un, en un rancho de, de vacas lecheras. Uh -huh. Pero esto es lo compartido yo con cualquiera que ha hablado conmigo. No me gustó la injusticia en ese rancho uh -huh. en específico. No me gustó la, la injusticia para la, para la gente que en, en su totalidad era latina. Uh -huh. Entonces decidí buscar por otro lado, contacté a Reginaldo y Reginaldo me dio la oportunidad de poder trabajar con ellos. Yo en Guatemala estuve trabajando con dos empresas que vendían agroquímicos. Yo les vendía agroquímicos a los, a los agricultores, a, a las grandes productoras de melón y, y de vegetales y aquí vine a ver la otra cara ¿no? de lo natural entonces yo vendía allá para matar plantas y uh -huh. para envenenar el suelo y aquí vengo a ver algo totalmente distinto ¿no? sino algo para regenerar eso que hemos estado contaminando y me gustó la idea me gustó el sistema de producción que es basado en, en aves que es eh, pollo de engorde y, y ave ponedora de huevos y aparte que no solo eso, no solo eso sino que también estamos eh, ayudándole al medio ambiente, ¿va? plantando eh, plantas perennes, plantas anuales, que al final pues nos dan un mejor clima, ¿va? un mejor, mejor ambiente. Entonces mi experiencia es esa, estamos trabajando en eso, estamos creando un equipo aquí en Rochester o cerca de Rochester para poder dedicarnos a eso, a hacer buena agricultura, para poderle brindar a las personas productos de calidad, naturales, sin químicos prácticamente y que sean accesibles para todos. No. Hay algo que a mí me encanta que cada vez que uno que sale al campo se llena uno de energía, no importa si vas de paseo, si vas a trabajar, si vas a, a darte la vuelta, este, uno regresa a su casa con, no sé, te levanta el, el espíritu, eh, como decían los, los antepasados, es, es la, la madre tierra te... te te llena de energía y, y estar viendo lo que uno, lo que te regresa cuando la tratas bien. Sí, si quieres elaborar un poco más, no necesitas más que ver lo que los japoneses han hecho últimamente. Están diseñando ciudades con pasajes llenos de diversidad de árboles, ni siquiera solo una especie. Porque ya llevan más de 20 años investigando el efecto que tiene, no solamente en el proceso neurológico de una persona, 
la forma en que te enojas o te tranquilizas, tu paz mental y tu posición física y todo eso, tiene mucho que ver con la naturaleza. En los Estados Unidos ahora ya hay un, un término médico que es nuevo, eh, igual como se habla de... ¿Cómo se le llama? Se le llama um, Nature Deficit Disorder. Okay. Es un desorden neurológico que se da cuando hay demasiada deficiencia de exposición a la naturaleza. Entonces lo que dices no solamente es percepción, es, es científicamente comprobado de que una persona que no se expone a la naturaleza tiene problemas mucho más complicados, tiene depresión y condiciones que no se dan o se pueden minimizar cuando tienen más exposición a la naturaleza. Entonces el campo es importantísimo, es imprescindible. Nosotros evolucionamos por millones de años en, una, en, 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 ese, en, ese, en ese ambiente. Entonces, no es así de la noche a la mañana que lo vamos a desconectar de nuestros sistemas naturales. Pero más sin embargo, hay personas que lo están haciendo. Y cuando hacemos eso, nos quedamos atrasados evolucionariamente y el cuerpo trata de responder y comienza a enloquecerse, terminas deprimiéndote, enfermo, de, de macrao y total. Entonces, eh, Parte de la idea nuestra es recrear esos ambientes, reclamar ese derecho al acceso a la naturaleza, que se nos niega cuando se nos compromete. A producir nuestro propio alimento. Sí, por un lado, pero, pero fíjate pues que ahorita como mano de obra barata, como se nos cataloga y se nos ve en forma a granel, también se nos niega la oportunidad hasta de pasar tiempo con nuestros hijos, mucho menos estar expuestos a la naturaleza. Entonces, ese es un derecho universal que tenemos y, y pues no se lo vamos a pedir a alguien más. La idea es construirlo nosotros mismos, pues no hay necesidad de andar limosneando por lo que nos Correcto. pertenece. Reggie, Wilmer, um, where can we find, I'm going to be sharing uh, the link to your Facebook page, to the page also, and uh, where people can contact you. Where can people find your book? Uh, right now, you can find it on Amazon. Um, okay. Also, Acres, can you repeat the title, please? Uh, In the Shadow of Green Men. Okay. In the Shadow of Green Men. En español sería El Duende Verde. También está en español? <laughs> en la Sombra del Duende Verde. No está todavía, pero oh, ya lo estamos traduciendo. Okay. So, the book can be found on Amazon and also acresusa.org. You can uh, order it um, for your through your local bookstores too. Most okay. most local bookstores. Libraries. Will, yeah, libraries will look it up. If you want it at the library, ask the librarians to order it, have it available. Um, anything that you can do with other books, you can do with this one too. No. Okay. Um, have you have some people from the area uh, contact you with the work that you guys are doing here? Or this is kind of, like you mentioned, you're on the first stage, kind of just studying the area. Right, right. No, right now we... We haven't done that part yet. We are not requesting, we're not okay. making an offer to anyone yet. Okay. Uh, we'll be doing that once there is a, um, a established you know, program, an okay. established site in a program. But right now, Wilbur already organized a small group, and that, that core group needs to be established before we go beyond okay. that. We will be um, hopefully starting distribution of products even before the, the group gets uh, moves to production, because we already have production in Northfield. So we may bring some of that to start supporting the development of the group here. So when we get there, we'll, we'll make it, make sure you know. Official, and, yeah. And we'll, we can share that information. Yep, and we'll communicate with the community, we'll go to newspapers and so on. That's why we are mapping out those resources now. Okay. Question, just uh, what kind of produce do you guys uh, produce? Right now we are focused on producing hazelnuts, which are 
is a native knot to the Midwest. So a tree, I hope. It's a bush. Oh, it's, it's a bush. It grows That's about a... 12, 14 feet. Okay. Um, very nutritious. It's native. Um, and Low it, maintenance. And so. Yeah, well, it does resistant great. Resistant to the plagues and all that. It's resistant to the the, the fungi that attacks um, okay. um, the eastern and the western hazelnut plantations. It's, it's okay. called filbert blight. Filbert is, what other, is another name for hazelnuts. Mm-hmm. And so that fungus, uh, these are hybrids that are resistant to filbert blight and we're the only ones in the nation that actually have those strains. So, I mean, not we as Main Street yeah. or us, but in the, in this region is, is where these strains are, these varieties are. Then we also produce elderberries, which are also native to this ecology. They, If you go into a natural forest around here, we are in the middle of what is called the big woods. It mm-hmm. extends all the way from North Dakota all the way across the state. And the big woods were dominated, and if you go to the big woods, Nestron Park, you will find the species, you know, um, okay. basswood, um, oaks, up to four or five kinds of oaks. Um, you also find a sugar maple. And right in those communities of plants, you find elderberries and hazelnuts. Now, we needed to pick from the from the native species those that are economically viable. And so those two we offer now. And they, how do you start? Do you start from seeds or little plants? or Both the, the hazelnuts we started from seeds. The um, elderberries can be cloned, so you you cut the cyan wood out of them, and then you put them in the ground. We just we just cut over twenty thousand stems this spring. Okay. Uh, to do that, and we have we will be we would have planted over fifty thousand hazelnuts by the end of the spring too. Uh, we planted nineteen thousand last year, and so on. And we have now larger scale nurseries that we are deploying so that we can have plants to keep expanding. Now that's that's one. Th- those are two mm-hmm. perennial products. The other thing we do is we are starting to produce uh, uh, corn that is suited to make uh, tortillas and food mm-hmm. out of. So food corn, not, not feed corn. Mm-hmm. Also uh, expanded our garlic production. Our, garden, okay. our garlic seed bank grew from about $12,000 a couple of years ago to over $60,000 worth of seed that we are going to be harvesting this year. So next year we'll have garlic for sale as well. Okay. We're also incorporating black beans. We're we are, are very good. Uh, you know, beans in general are recommended mm-hmm. highly by, by wellness uh, doctors yeah. and so on. So we'll have that too. And, of course, we, we can, can grow lettuce and spinach. We don't do a lot of that because there's a lot of farmers already doing that. And, yeah. well, we find that. Different products. And we don't have to go there because they are labor intensive. They are expensive and they are very vulnerable to climate and all of that. Yeah. They are not very resilient. And the lifespan you know. when it's ready is also Exactly. Smaller. So it's a very different kind of business yeah. and, and we want to stick to the poultry as the center of our business propositions and then perennial crops as part of the long-term business success story and then some focused annual crops like garlic, corn, onions but rather than doing you know a little bit of each one of them, do them at large scale and supply the, the large-scale markets instead of going to the individual consumers, although we could do some of it that way. The aim is is to, I mean, bottom line is that we could produce all of the garlic that Rochester consumes and more. So right. bottom line is uh, we, we are, we're, we're after the scale, the scale systems, not necessarily the, 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 um, the small production for direct sales. Now the um, the one thing I don't want anybody to get confused about is that small scale means 
I mean, large-scale systems doesn't mean we compromise the small-scale nature of the farms. So it is a large-scale system of small farms. Let's clarify that because a lot of people get confused. Also, you're going to launch these mega farms around us. No, 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 no. And nothing to do with that. Great. Uh, Anything else that you guys want to share? I would just say, you know, it's time to get excited about the future here. And um, we have a lot of problems today. They have come from very, very well-known places. And now that we know all of that, it's time to start permanently solving some of those issues. And to do that, we need to redesign a lot of the systems that we we have come to assume we have to depend on. A lot of it is not true. Some of it is true, but a lot of it is not. Agriculture is the classical example of a system that not only is failing us, but it's very easy to fix if we just want to do that. Um, Where is the radio that you look in outside Rochester? Like a close? I'm just thinking as if somebody is interested in just to consider time and, you know, since you live in a city and obviously you have a job, but this is a project, you want to get involved. 20 miles, 15 miles radio outside Rochester? Yeah, think about more of like a region now because we already have operations in Northfield and in Faribault. Okay. So if you are between Rochester and Faribault, this is already an area we could go anywhere. Um, If you are south of Rochester, we want to stay within 25 miles. We don't want to go farther than that, south and okay. east of Rochester. Now, north of Rochester and northwest of Rochester, the whole landscape is is actually feasible to 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 find. To find you know, if if somebody from that region is interested in what we're doing, um, by all means, get in touch. Okay. Well, thank you guys for stopping by, and uh, let's stay in tune and in contact to share more information. Also, I want to invite everybody to follow us again on Twitter. Go on their, find, You can find us on Twitter on their community board. If you go on Facebook, also go on and look on their, on their pages, community board. If you go on iTunes, community board podcast. Also on SoundCloud, community board podcast. And stay tuned and let's go outside. Bye-bye.